Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Today we are talking with historian, author and podcaster Chris Riley, all about the formidable Eleanor of Aquitaine. Thank you for coming back on the podcast, Chris. How are you doing, mate? Uh, no worries, any time. Uh, yeah, uh, busy, busy weekend, but uh, other than that, I'm doing all right. Yeah, you've certainly had a very, very, very busy weekend, busier than most. So thank you very much for coming on this morning. <laughs> really appreciate it. So it's absolutely no problem. <laughs> you've 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 had this long-standing interest in Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, and my first question, of course, is personal for personal interest. How did you initially get interested in Eleanor of Aquitaine? So, it's a good question, really, because when you first um, kind of sent me these questions through, I wasn't quite sure where my initial uh, fondness for Eleanor came from, and then, <clears throat> hence, you know, I've had a busy weekend. For context, I've been I've been moving house, um, and I actually found, during the packing process, I found a little green notebook that I was writing in a few years ago. Um, basically, long story short, Back end of so summer, back in the 2019, um, I decided I was going to write a short history book. This is before I started to really focus on history again. Um, yeah, I wanted just to write a a short history book um, for a kind of just you know very very simple kind of pub quiz uh, medieval history facts. And I found loads of biographies I'd written um, from there was it started with like Empress Matilda and Stephen. And then I'd done all the kings and queens of England up until, I think, Edward III, I found. Um, but the one I found, the funniest in, t- in terms of context of this podcast, was Eleanor of Aquitaine's, because I'd starred her name. And I don't know why, but obviously I'm assuming it's because I found her so interesting. Because, if I'm brutally honest, up until a few years ago, I didn't really know anything about her, just a name. Um, but as I'm, sh- I'm hoping even if it's just Hugh Jackson, but hopefully people that are listening to this, you know, a couple of, a couple of, uh, you know, 20 minutes here or there about Eleanor of Aquitaine and you kind of sold for life. So yeah, it's a bit of an odd way around to get to someone, but yeah, it was just kind of through happenstance really. Cause I think I was probably looking more at Henry the second or even Richard Leinhart, um, and just stumbled across, uh, Eleanor and was, um, yeah, really, really interested from, from day dot really. That's that's really fascinating that you you had all these ideas before you even started getting back into history and with all the roles you have now that's that's really quite funny actually that it started with writing something uh, mm. and now you're editing things that other people write about their own interests which is yeah. a roundabout way isn't it and I, I'd certainly agree you look at some bigger areas or you look at something else and suddenly you become interested in what eventually becomes your specialism. So I can I can certainly see how you got into Eleanor, and certainly from my research for this episode, I can definitely see why you got interested in Eleanor. So we're we're speaking about Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, but firstly, the question that we need to answer is, who was she? Well, I mean, it's a massive question. Um, it's probably easy to say who wasn't Eleanor of Aquitaine. Uh, simply, Eleanor was born. You guessed it, in Aquitaine, in what is today France, um, in the early 12th century. She lived for virtually the entire 12th century. Uh, She lived a very, very long and interesting life. Um, She went on crusade. She was Queen of France. She was Queen of England. She's the only person in history to hold both of those titles. 
Um, she was mother to uh, two kings, grandmother to a king of France, um, you know, patron of the arts, uh, religious woman, stateswoman, politician. Uh, what else was she? I mean, that pretty much is everything, but I've, I've been very casual about all of those things because most people maybe do, most important people do maybe one or two of those things in her entire life. And, and you know, she, she pretty much ticked all of, the, um, all of the high society boxes, really. Yeah, I like, I like that, that concept, ticking all of the boxes of high society. And she really was an interesting, formidable woman. So we've seen that she's from France. Mm. We see that she's from Aquitaine. Now, medieval families, uh, barons, nobles, the families of nobles, are very, very important in the medieval period. And there is no place where they are so as important as they were in France. So what kind of family was Eleanor born into? And how important were her family in France in this period? Yeah, so Eleanor was born around 1124. I say around because we don't actually know even though she's probably the most famous uh, medieval woman since, you know, pre-Joan of Arc. Um, we don't actually know when she was born or where. We think maybe Bordeaux, um, but we're not sure again. Um, she was the daughter of William X of Aquitaine. Um, and, yeah, you know, you say how important. The, the Dukes of Aquitaine, Aquitaine goes from roughly what, where, is, where is Bordeaux to down to kind of like Toulouse, um, so the southwest of France. Um, so it's a massive, massive portion of, of, of Earth um, at the very least. So you can imagine the wealth um, that that land uh, generated. Um, France at this point, it's really important to, to know, is not what it is today. Uh, it actually wasn't even called France, it was called uh, Francia. Um, actually, Philip Augustus, who we'll get onto later, was the first king to call himself king of the French rather than King of the Franks, but I digress. Um, so yeah, she, she comes from an illustrious family. Her grandfather actually um, was the first troubadour, uh, so he basically came back from the First Crusade, brought back um, music from Spain and the Holy Land, and created this um, entire phenomenon around music and dance and um, kind of a little bit more of a free freer court but we'll, again we'll get onto that later so yeah Eleanor comes from a long line of um, dukes and duchesses um, but her her life kind of changes from the expected trajectory from a daughter of a duke quite quickly and and that land that she's from and her family is from has been so important to the French and the Franks for millennia uh, and it continues to be an important and a contentious area in France, even today. But most of our listeners might be familiar with the kind of education that medieval princes and nobles received. How different was Eleanor's education from the education that they would have received? And what kind of person did this make her? Because education is an important part of medieval noble life. Yeah, great question. I mean, <clears throat> whether her father had some kind of <laughs> foresight or not, I d obviously I don't think he did. But um, Eleanor was raised very similar to her elder, uh, to her younger brother, sorry, um, William, who was heir to the to the Duke Derm. Um, she would have been raised. Obviously, she is still a woman, 
Um, so for better or for worse, she was raised differently. So she was she would have been um, taught needlework and how to run a household from a female point of view. But um, she was likely um, fluent in Latin. She would have been uh, fluent in the, the French of um, the north um, and her own local dialect, um, which is at a Poitavan or uh, Occitan or Occitan, um, which is essentially a dialect of French, similar to uh, Spain and Catalan. So very, very similar, but also completely separate languages. Um, she was, in a sense, and it would turn out to be very good, um, uh, raised to rule. Um, whether that would, was intentional for her to be Duchess of Aquitaine, which it probably wasn't because she did have a brother, um, but as we'll get on to uh, later in the episode, we'll see that her, her, ed, her very, very good, thorough education that her father decided was, was, was valuable did absolutely come in clutch. Yeah, her father obviously must have had a degree of foresight there to, to give such a valuable education to his daughter, uh, particularly in the 12th century. But there's something I definitely want to unpack there. You mentioned that Eleanor was fluent in her, her native town of Ocatan or Povequina. I can't, I can't quite remember how to pronounce that one. <laughs> Poitavan. Poitavan, there we go. Um, but you also mentioned the French of the north, uh, the Longdoy. Mm. Why, why is that important that she learns the French of the north? The same reason that you know Stephen and Matilda, who were battling it out, or soon to be battling it out in in England, were speaking that language because it was the language of court. Um, French at this time, or the Languedoc, as you just uh, as you quite rightly say, different to the Languedoc, which is the southern French language, which again we'll get onto. That was the language spoken by courts around around Europe, maybe outside of Germany, um, partly in due to in England because of the Norman invasion, but uh, also it was the, the, the French sphere of influence um, can't really be understated at this point um, in Western Europe. Um, outside, you know, the Iberian Peninsula is still very much um, Muslim controlled, especially in the south, but um, beyond the Pyrenees, you know, all the way up to, you know, Scotland, French is a language that is heard far more than uh, local dialects are in court. Obviously, on the streets, in the pub, people are talking like me and you. Well, not exactly like me and you, but uh, you, you get my point. That's, that's, that's really fascinating. I quite like the point that we're seeing the, the sphere of influence and the sphere of power of France being perpetuated from the Pyrenees to Scotland. And the fact that there is a single language which is defining that within these multiple dialects within France... Is, is really, we see that play out later in the Albigensian Crusade, which I'm mm. particularly quite interested in. Now, back to Eleanor. Now, an 1130 tragedy strikes in Eleanor's life. What was this tragedy and how did it affect the trajectory of her life? Because right now she's, she's resigned to this life as possibly a noble's wife running the household. How does it change it? Yeah, so her aforementioned brother William unfortunately dies at the age of four. So the heir to the duchy, um, you know, like, you know, is no longer with us as such. Um, and it pretty much projects, uh, sorry, it, it propels Eleanor um, to a position that 
very, very few women in medieval history have found themselves at the head, of, sorry, the heir to um, one of the most powerful and influential duchies in Europe. Um, so she goes, like you said, from the absolutely the potential wife of, as we see, kings, um, to a ruler in her own right that luckily she was she was somewhat prepared for. And that massive difference, uh, it basically puts her on par with a lot of men, which is very unusual within this period. And with this mm. increase in power for Eleanor, her stock rises across Europe. Uh, tragedy Absolutely. befalls again, though. Tragedy befalls again with the death of her father in 1137. How does, how does William die, and, and how does this affect Eleanor and France? Yeah, so when, when William X dies, um, at this point she's already been betrothed to the son of Louis VI of France, the King of France. Um, and interesting point about Louis, the future Louis VII, who she marries, uh, he was never really meant to be king. Similar to her with, with, with being Duchess, she was never really meant to be uh, the King of France. He was, he was raised to go into the church. Um, his elder brother, Philip, died in a... With, with a thousand years of history, quite a humorous way. His horse tripped over a pig, um, which we shouldn't laugh at, but it's, if you're going to go, that's it's kind of a funny way to go. Um, but yeah, this essentially made, the death of her father made Eleanor the most sought-after bachelorette, probably in the world at the time, which sounds like a big claim, um, but I, I think it's a, it's a fairly legit one. Um, you know, she went, like I said, she went from the eldest daughter of a powerful duke to essentially a duke who you could marry, um, which is, I guess, a strange concept for us, but um, at the time um, it was something that was not necessarily even sought after. Um, but, but yeah, it, was, it, it put her on a path that you know, I don't think anybody really expected her uh, to be on and she obviously didn't expect to be on that path being no. being raised with a younger brother now we've mentioned that she becomes queen of France a, a, a remarkable rise from being the the future wife of a noble how is Eleanor and Louis's marriage because obviously what Eleanor has experienced up until this point would have made her a very formidable presence, a very powerful person. How does this power mix with royalty? Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not the best marriage. Um, it's definitely a political marriage. Um, it, seems to, it seems to serve Louis far more um, than it does Eleanor in a sense that Louis VII isn't only just king of France in a sense that he holds that title. Um, he holds all of the land around uh, the Ile de France, which is the uh, historic heartland of France, around Paris, but also all of the lands of Aquitaine, essentially through Eleanor. Um, like you said, Eleanor is a formidable woman, um, and she would have wanted to maintain control over her own lands. Um, Louis, as a man, saw, to, you know, saw it as his role uh, to do that so uh, I can imagine there was quite a few arguments over I want to do this but no you're a woman you can't do this so um, it, it wasn't the happiest of marriages 
Also, Eleanor was probably not enjoying being in the cold, cold north in Paris, whereas she's used to, um, you know, really, really nice hot springs and summers in the south of France. You know, it's something that people still do uh, today. Um, so, yeah, I can't imagine she was having the best of times. There is a rumour that she also invented or introduced uh, inbuilt fireplaces due to this. Um, she had a fireplace constructed uh, in one of her rooms, um, and that is potentially where the tradition of inbuilt fireplaces in the walls of buildings comes from, rather than just being fire pits uh, in the middle of the floor. So, um, you know, I guess she took the good with the bad. Um, but ultimately, Eleanor, as a um, young and virile woman, um, wasn't very happy that she essentially, as she says, married a monk, not a, not a prince uh, in Louis the Seventh, who, like I said, was actually educated for the church because, like Eleanor, she did, he did have a brother who was meant to inherit the throne. And, like you said, that must have been a massive shock to her system just to be up there in the north, the cold north, mm. away from her Aquitaine region. And it's quite interesting that he was raised to be part of of the church. I think it's also quite important to look at this period. The kings of France were not as important or mm. as, as powerful as we, we imagine. How was that power structured in France with the king? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, yeah, like I kind of alluded to it already through, throughout this episode that French or being French or being a Frank was very, very important. Um, you see in the First Crusade that... Um, the um, Muslim writers refer to the Crusaders as Franks. Um, the Byzantine emperor at the time um, asks for Frankish help. So the idea of Frenchmen, let's say, was very, very important and very influential. But France as a country, as it looks today, um, was split up into dukedoms, uh, counties and, and baronies. You know, the Dukes of Aquitaine, the Dukes of Normandy, of Brittany... Um, the Counts of Champagne and Vermandois, um, you know, that every single region of France was essentially split up and to a degree ruled autonomously, uh, especially in the south, which, you know, you've already mentioned the Albigensian Crusade, which saw, which saw um, uh, essentially, apparently, southern heretics, Cathar heretics who went against the Catholic faith. Um, and with the Albigensian Crusade, I'm still going into the future here, uh, in the early 13th century, with the success of the Albigensian Crusade for the French king that basically destroyed southern French culture as a separate unity, as a separate place, sorry, um, and completely brought it into the French fold, which, you know, we, we start to see a united French kingdom uh, emerging at that point. And they, the Albigensian Crusade was certainly a very sad moment in French history, but mm. a very, very happy moment for the French monarchy. Now, looking at Eleanor and looking at power, when she becomes the Queen of France, she is still, rightly, a formidable presence in France, but now as Queen. Mm. But, again, being a formidable person, a strong presence, she starts to become a nuisance, and particularly to religious leaders. How does this, how does this idea of Eleanor becoming a bit of a nuisance emerge? 
Mm. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's two really important points. You've made one of them in, in her being uh, formidable and powerful in her own right, but also the way she was raised, the area that she was raised in, um, was a little bit more free-thinking um, in terms of religious control. They were very much into um, expressing themselves through music and dance and, and courtly love, um, the pursuit of, of, of the unattainable woman and all these things. So there was a, there was a situation um, in which her sister Petronilla, or, or Alice, I don't know where those two names, I don't know how you can be one or the other, um, wanted to marry a married man, or the man wanted to marry her. Um, Raoul uh, was the Count of Vermandois. Um, and obviously anybody that knows anything about the medieval church is you can very, very rarely get an annulment. Uh, nevertheless, a, you know, absolutely never a divorce. I don't think the word even entered the lexicon. Um, but Eleanor used her influence as queen to convince her very pious husband, Louis VII, um, to um, basically say, nah, it's all good. You two get married. I'll make sure that your old wife is, is, is got rid of, not murdered, but you know you're not married to her anymore and you can marry Eleanor's sister uh, and surprisingly this didn't go down very well with the Pope who actually excommunicated um, Louis VII um, but yeah you can clearly see that you can see Eleanor's influence in decisions like this um, I know she spoke to um, Bernard of Clairvaux who is famous for um rebel rousing for the crusades um and she you know begged him to you know make sure that because uh, she at this point her and louis weren't producing children um she did have a daughter named marie um but they needed a son um not even ideally they needed a son because in in france they couldn't uh women could not inherit anything um so yeah she managed to uh, annoy a lot of a lot of churchmen uh, just by asking questions and doing things on her own, uh, on her own time and by her own will. So she was um, a woman ahead of her time, let's say, because she uh, she definitely put her own personal ambitions and her, that of her family's happiness um, ahead of what the uh, Catholic Church thought was uh, appropriate at times. And the power and the the sheer determination and will to go against what the church is telling you to go against the teachings of the church really sets her out at this point and really sets her stall out uh, that she's not going to take any any funny business with the church. She's not going to take being a woman stop her from doing what she wants to do. Now, we then have a 180 degree turn from Eleanor where she moves from being a nuisance to relig religious leaders to using her role as queen and her unusual position as a feudal leader of Aquitaine to be one of the church's greatest supporters within the 12th century. How does this come about? Mm, yeah, so in um, 1142, actually, um, Louis was in a dynastic dispute, civil war, whatever you want to call it, um, in the Champagne region. And essentially what happened is by apparent complete accident, um, there was a complete massacre um, in the town of Vitry uh, in the Champagne region where I think it was a thousand citizens were herded into a church and the church burnt down, um, which for anyone is a tragedy, but for Louis as a pious man, 
who was raised for the church, this is an absolute, you know, travesty. So, coincidentally, around this same time, the Crusader state, uh, the county of Edessa, uh, had fallen to uh, a chap called Zengi, who was a, uh, a Turkish warlord who was uh, raping and pillaging his way through the Holy Land again. Um, so this was a good opportunity for Louis um, to repent for his insane sins that he just kind of created out of thin air. Um, but also for Eleanor, this gave her an opportunity, like you said, to um, prove her mettle as a feudal leader. So the Second Crusade, as it would be called, was called um, shortly after the massacre at Vitry. And Eleanor made a point of taking the cross herself. So the word crusader comes from taking the cross, i.e. placing a cloth cross on your uh, shoulders or your chest, as we see in popular imagery of crusaders now. So Eleanor, as a woman, this was very, very odd anyway for her to go on crusade, but her to take the cross as well, as a feudal, as a leader of this crusade, was, was even, even stranger. She, um, not necessarily maybe in a military sense, but she was the de facto leader of the of the troops from Aquitaine during the entire crusade as well. It, she thought this was a very important part as the Duchess of Aquitaine um, to take her troops personally into combat um, as their leader. So yes, like you said, she does a full 180 and becomes with her husband um, one of the leaders of the Second Crusade. And yet again, it just adds another interesting page to Eleanor's story. She is such a fascinating woman the fact that she saw that she herself could go uh and manipulating the rights that she had as a feudal leader to overcome the lack of rights that she had as a woman is is really quite clever and inspiring mm. now eleanor as you just mentioned goes on the second crusade what does she do here and what does she achieve during this second crusade think you're muted Chris yes I am thank you <coughs> sorry so it's important to note that the second crusade was a all-out failure uh, the county of Edessa was never recaptured um, and ultimately like I said the the, the expedition failed um, Eleanor was probably a bit of a nuisance on on the expedition she reportedly took an insane amount of baggage with her, you know, clothing and ladies in waiting and servants and things like that with her. So quite famously, um, Louis and the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, Conrad III, argued over uh, which routes to take um, and, you know, what targets to hit um, to better, um, you know, recapture the, the uh, county of Edessa. And as the French forces led by Louis were... Um, were traversing this mountain. Uh, Eleanor's troops from Aquitaine were, were up front, but left the baggage train at the back. Um, as the uh, Turks hit the baggage train and all of Louis's troops, uh, massacring them um, pretty much entirely, rendering the, the expedition almost done before it even started. Um, and Eleanor took quite a lot of flack for this, kind of understandably. Um, due to it was kind of her baggage train that attracted the um, the enemy forces. You know her troops were out of the way. 
And uh, yeah, she she caused a fair amount of problems in that. But having said that, throughout the entire expedition, she was at the table talking tactics and strategy, um, quite famously with her uncle Raymond the Handsome of Antioch, um, who some people claim that she had a incestuous incestuous uh, affair with. I think it's complete rubbish. Um, as we see a lot through through Eleanor's story, uh, chroniclers really like to um, make anything good about Eleanor somebody else's or anything bad. Um, truly, the fact that you know she was just a silly woman who didn't really know what was going on. So um, Eleanor really did pull her weight in the Crusades, but as we see with most Crusades, outside of probably the first and maybe the third, everybody kind of just got it wrong um but it's very very interesting to see her as a woman you know like we've said as a feudal leader uh, leading troops um essentially from the front or as close to the front as a woman could get um but yeah um catastrophic failure yeah and certainly shows it to be a, a catastrophic political failure this crusade also turns into almost a catastrophic personal failure for Eleanor as her marriage and relationship with Louis starts to sour mm. now how does this happen and what happens to this marriage because whilst it was uneasy as we touched upon earlier she is still one of the foremost most powerful women in, in not just France but in the world so anything that happens to this marriage is definitely going to affect that power yeah great question um, like yeah, I've, I've already mentioned um, two contributing factors. There is the apparent affair with her uncle, which, like I said, I'm pretty sure is is completely made up. Um, but you know, Louis's piety and, and a lack of genuine interest in Eleanor as a person um, really seems to, as on, as it would anyone, you know, affect Eleanor's um, ability to be married to him. Um, also, like I said, they only have the one daughter at this point, um, and they both need an heir. You know, this isn't just a one-sided thing from Louis. Eleanor's job, whether you know, obviously that's not the case today, but she was very aware that her job, first and foremost, was to produce lots of male heirs, um, and currently they weren't doing that. Um, Louis, on the other hand, very much wanted to keep this marriage intact. Um, the lands of Aquitaine were, you know, plentiful. Uh, they were rich. There was there was so much for him to lose from losing Eleanor, not just his wife. Um, so on the way back from the Second Crusade, there is an attempt by arguably the least qualified man in history um, to get them to produce a male heir, uh, the Pope, um, the world's most famous virgin, um, as I think Greg Jenner says on uh, the um, Your Dead City podcast when they're talking about Eleanor of Aquitaine, I always found that funny. Um, because the, the Pope, you know, massive virgin, famous virgin. Um, <laughs> I'm going to stop saying that word now. Um, yeah, I probably won't know. let this one go to the Vatican. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, he should be proud of that fact. Yeah. That's, his, that's his whole game. Especially a medieval um, Pope as absolutely, well. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, he was very keen on keeping this marriage together. You know, in medieval times, you weren't just married to your wife or your husband, you were married to God as well. Um, so that he had a special chamber blessed for them to produce a child. It was at the Vatican, which is probably very cool, to be fair. Um, and they did produce a child, but it was a daughter. 
again, which is rubbish if you're a medieval king, especially a French one. Um, she was named Alice, and um, both Marie and Alice had very successful political careers. Um, but that was it. That was the final straw for Eleanor. Um, and eventually, in 1137, the marriage was annulled um, due to them being too closely related, um, which was a common trend in high-born marriages. Um, obviously, the, the trope is that everybody was related, everyone married their cousins, which wasn't entirely true. Eleanor and Louis, I think, were sixth cousins, um, which was just on the cusp of what the Pope or the Church considered um, too close uh, too close a marriage. Uh, not that that mattered for the last sort of 15 years, but anyway, that's man six. Uh, and yes, the marriage was annulled in 1137. And she must have been a very relieved person after this marriage was annulled because she finally, she doesn't lose Aquitaine within this annulment. And with the advent of this annulment, no. she yet again becomes a very powerful and eligible bachelorette, as you mentioned earlier. How does she use her position as the most powerful woman in Europe and the most eligible bachelorette in the world? Well, essentially, Eleanor can now decide who she wants to marry, which is not a position most women find themselves in in this period. Um, having said that, though, she's also in a very dangerous position. As Duchess of Aquitaine, she controls most of France, realistically. Um, and on her way back to Aquitaine after the annulment, uh, she there is several attempted kidnappings on her, uh, including a future brother-in-law, um, Geoffrey of Anjou, um, because you know that was considered a completely legitimate way to uh, marry someone, which was to forcibly kidnap them and forcibly marry them. So this wasn't out of the ordinary, and it's probably something that uh, her and her advisors ex expected. Um, but quite quickly. <clears throat> Um, Eleanor was, was uh, to be married again and you know she made a political decision again to marry the uh, slightly younger than her uh, Henry of Anjou the, the brother of the aforementioned kidnapper Geoffrey um, at this time uh, Henry was the son of um, Geoffrey Plantagenet or Geoffrey of Anjou and the Empress Matilda uh, in my eyes the true heir to the throne of England during the anarchy um, so he was in a position of immense power. He was on the cusp of, uh, he was in, you know, to inherit the Duke, Dukedom of Normandy from his, his father, who had wrestled it from Stephen. Um, he was already uh, essentially um, in charge of Anjou and Maine. And not at this point, but very, very soon, he was heir to the throne of England and would eventually become uh, Henry II. Um, so Eleanor went from one king to another, essentially in the space of eight weeks, which was how long it took them to get married. That that's fascinating that she's managed to leverage her position to to mm. become possibly even more powerful as is as Henry is a duke within France. He he probably holds considerably more power than the king does at this period now. Mm. Now, how were Henry and Eleanor at the beginning of this marriage? And how did she help Henry with his ambition to become King of England? Yeah, so first and foremost, having the backing of Aquitaine would allow Henry troops and resource that he just wouldn't have had before. So having the backing of such a large dukedom on top of his mother and father um, and his own 
mm. um, prowess on the battlefield um, would have made becoming king easier. I was going to say really easy, but that's not true. Um, the start of the relationship, there must have been some level of physical attraction because they eventually produced eight children. Um, you know, five sons and three daughters. So they were both very similar people. They were both fiery. They were both very hot-headed, uh, hot-headed. Sorry, and you know, ambitious. You know, like you said, he he wanted to become king of England through his the rights through his mother, um, and she wanted to be the most powerful woman in the world, likely. So um, it was a much better match at the start than it was with Louis. And that's that must have been a point of happiness for Ellen to to be in a relationship where she she is kind of matched in ambition uh and and power really it must have made a very different dynamic than it did with louis now just as her relationship yeah. oh sorry chris no no go on well just as her relationship with louis henry's and eleanor's marriage strains why does it strain? Uh, there seems to be a trend emerging here. And how does Eleanor, how does Eleanor react to this strain? So there's actually a couple of different strains. The main one is, as with Louis, Eleanor wanted to, you know, control Aquitaine, which is now under the sphere of England rather than France. Um, she wanted to rule Aquitaine as the Duchess in her own right. She was very fond of her homeland, as you would be. Um, but Henry being the ambitious, fiery Plantagenet that we we would get to, you know, that we we see through history, um, didn't like that. Um, so there was there was arguing and um, probably considerable arguing, to be fair. And the pair eventually kind of separated. Um, they didn't get divorced because that's virtually impossible. They stayed married. Uh, interesting point. Henry and Eleanor were actually more closely related than. Eleanor and Louis. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, there was also um, Henry's infidelity. Uh, he wasn't the most awful king for having second families. His his grandfather, Henry I, was probably the worst. I think he had 24 illegitimate, illegitimate children. Um, but yeah, Eleanor did not appreciate her husband being um, unfaithful. Um, but you know, like we saw with Louis, it was it was very much based around um, control in Aquitaine. Because Henry wasn't popular in Aquitaine either. Um, the 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 locals rebelled several times against English rule. So realistically, it made sense for Eleanor to rule in her own right. But it didn't really happen, and then it did because Henry essentially sent, or Eleanor decided to go back to Aquitaine um, and rule from her own court. Um, on her own, and, and and those infidelities might have been quite a strange thing for Eleanor to have to experience and deal with. As you mentioned, her previous husband was more a monk than a king, so this mm. might have been a very unusual prospect and position for Eleanor. Now you've just mentioned Eleanor's court. Now I'd really want to unpack this before we we carry on with her relationship with Henry. What is the significance of this court? It seems to be a very powerful and unusual court within the medieval period. How does it affect the way that courts operate moving forward from this point? Yeah, so unfortunately I, I might have to spoil the fun a little bit here. and um, 
and say that a lot of what is, is said about this court of love that has been coined around Eleanor uh, isn't necessarily true. Um, so for, for context, the story goes that Eleanor eventually then met up with her daughters, uh, Marie and Alice, from her first husband. That's the first out, outright lie um, because part of her annulment agreement was that she would never see her daughters again. <clears throat> so it's very, very unlikely that um, she was able to to see her daughters uh, back in 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 Poitou. Um, so the court was supposed to be um, free, you know, free loving, and you know, like I said, based around this troubadour culture of of courtly love, which was absolutely true in southern France. And I'm I'm not going to say that it was dry and dark and dreary like you know everywhere else in 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 courts around around Europe. But um, this idea that her and her daughters uh, ruled Aquitaine as as free women and and all this was was probably not true, but she did introduce um, the troubadour culture into the rest of Europe. Essentially, um, you know the idea of of uh, bands of musicians traveling, uh, performing for nobles. This idea, you know, the this the Arthurian legend was was born in this period. Um, tales of chivalry and. And she really did foster that. That is absolutely true. Um, but yeah, it is a bit of a, not a trope, it's a classic Victorian reimagining of medieval England and medieval France where it's, you know, everything's wonderful and noble and chivalrous. But in actual fact, um, she was still a political leader. Um, she just, you know, um, she was a lot more um, free when it came to pastimes in terms of People enjoyed themselves uh, a little bit more than they may have done in the very, very pious courts of, of Paris and uh, of London. And yet again, the Victorians have an awful lot mm. to answer for historically. And it does sound quite an interesting idea for a court, but obviously, as you've just mentioned, it's, it's founded in myth uh, and fantasy. Now, returning mm. to Eleanor and Henry... Just as she did with Louis, they become est estranged, and uh, and their relation is not amicable. But, but, she maintains a relationship with her sons. So how different was Eleanor's relationship with her sons to Henry's relationship with his sons, and how does this create problems for Henry and England? Yeah. So. Henry II of England is probably one of the most successful and powerful and most well-known kings in English history, up there with like Edward III in terms of you know, his, his, his lands stretched from the Scottish lowlands to the Pyrenees. Um, but his relationship with his sons was uh, dubious at best. He had several sons who vied for power. Um, his eldest surviving son, uh, Henry, was actually crowned during Henry's lifetime. Uh, so he's Realistically, we've had nine kings called Henry. Uh, he was crowned Henry the Young King, so we didn't get a number. Um, but Henry the Young King wanted power. You know, he was a crowned monarch. Um, but his father, Henry II, essentially refused to give him anything to do, um, which caused rebellions uh, in the 1170s. Um, his, his younger sons, uh, Geoffrey and Richard, the future Richard the Lionheart, also took part in these rebellions as well. Um, as they wanted power, um, how how the empire, the Angevin Empire, again another Victorian invention, um, had been parcelled up, was Henry, set the young king, 
the, I guess the future Henry III, even though he never became Henry III, would get um, Anjou, Maine and England. Um, Geoffrey would get Brittany through a marriage. Uh, and Richard would get Aquitaine and little John would get nothing. Uh, he did get Ireland for a bit, but then it didn't work. Um, but they all wanted this power now. Uh, and with the help of their mother, Eleanor, uh, they waged war against their father, which seems odd. But also I can understand why, you know, you see all this land and all this power and all this wealth and you have no access to it. Um, but your father keeps it all for himself. And anyone that's played uh, Crusader Kings 3 as much as I have knows that you keep you have too many domains. Um, your vassals get very very unhappy and they rebel against you. And we you know we see this in in the eleven seventies. Um, and Eleanor probably comes out the worst of all um, because she's imprisoned for you know ten to fifteen years, and she pretty much disappears from from chronicle records for this period. Um, uh, you know their relationship is probably at the lowest point it ever gets to. Um, they are completely estranged. She is kept at you know series of castles in in France and in England under house arrest. Um, but she, you know, backs her sons to the hilt uh, pretty much through the rest of her life, um, for better or for worse, when, especially when it comes to John. Um, but yeah, it's a very um, turbulent end to Henry II's reign uh, in 1189, because at that time, Richard, um, Eleanor's apparent favourite son, um, again is in open rebellion, um, even with his younger brother John, who has been historically his father's greatest friend and uh, an ally, um, which breaks Henry II's heart essentially, which I always find a very very sad end to Henry II. Um, and but once once Henry II is um, no longer king and Richard becomes Richard, well King Richard because he's not Lionheart yet. Um, Eleanor is freed from prison and is then instantly back on the political scene as as regent unofficial regent through richard's reign and for her to be able to do that and back her sons shows just how again shows how formidable she is and how much of a threat she is to to kings regardless of their their level of authority within this medieval world the fact that she's able to challenge that and mm. challenge that successfully is is really inspiring now, you've mentioned the death of Henry II and Richard becoming king. We have an emergence of Eleanor, or re-emergence of Eleanor back on the political scene. How, how influential and powerful does she become during Richard's reign? Obviously, she's had 15 years out of this, the hot seat. How does her return go? Yeah, so, <clears throat> for context, Richard um, doesn't like England. Um, but also, he's very much uh, wanting to go on crusade. The third crusade at this point has been called uh, two years prior in 1187. Um, so virtually as soon as he is crowned king, he's off to the Holy Land. Um, and in, that, in his absence, um, Eleanor becomes the kind of unofficial um, regent. Uh, there are official, there is a regency council set up, um, headed by William de Longchamp and, and uh, Hubert Walter, um, but Eleanor continues to describe herself as, by the grace of God, Eleanor, Queen of England, um, and she runs the uh, Richard's lands. One of her main jobs is also to stop his little brother John, um, who eventually becomes King John, 
um, from rebelling against his absent brother. Um, John's awful. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat it at all. Um, Richard's pretty bad, but John is truly the worst. Um, so yeah, she basically becomes um, queen regent for the you know for the rest of her life. And to have to keep your youngest son in check, who for all intents and purposes wasn't that much of an issue for Henry through the majority of his life, but was an issue for Richard, mm. um, is a big task. He's a he's a powerful man, or he's attempting to be a powerful man, and having to constantly put out fires whilst Richard is away, whilst Richard is in prison, must cause mm. a massive strain on Anna. But she still holds the feudal power, uh, the feudal title of Duchess in France for Aquitaine. How much power does she retain in France during this period? So this is kind of the last time where we see a genuine influence coming from across the channel into France for a very long time. Um, Richard famously, his favourite, you know, his favourite place to live was Aquitaine as well. So um, even though Richard has inherited all of these titles and, and the actual title of king, Eleanor, as she does in England, retains a considerable power um, back in in France. Um, like you said she is still a, a feudal leader uh, in Europe and is seen as such. Um, it's interesting you mention uh, Richard's captivity as well. Um, for context, Richard is captured uh, in 1192 by the um, Duke of Austria and is essentially sold to the Holy Roman Empire Emperor. Sorry. Uh, and he's kept um, in prison for two years, uh, and it's Eleanor who, um, in part, gets the insane amount of money um, gathered to pay for his ransom, and it is where we turn uh, a king's ransom from, um, because it was the ransom for a king. And that, having to raise that money as well shows how mm. much he cares about her family, and, and touches on that point that you mentioned earlier, that she will put family and what's good for her realm and her duchy in front of all, including her people, her subjects, her church. And, and she certainly does that with the king's ransom, putting Richard ahead of the good of the kingdom. Mm. At 77, this is one of the most famous stories about Eleanor. She embarks on a famous journey. What what was this journey, uh, and why why was she forced to undertake this journey? It's a uh, it's a journey that is significant, ingrained in the consciousness of a very very large number of historians, a large number of contemporaries, and it appears quite a few times in chronicles. Yeah, it's a very Eleanor trip, I think, because it's kind of got everything that she was good at involved in it. So. For context, in 1199, Richard I um, is is killed by a boy with a saucepan on his hat, on his head, by a crossbow, um, and John unfortunately becomes king. And John is rubbish, as we've already established. Um, the empire of his father is crumbling. Philip Augustus of France, Philip II, is, you know, taking swathes of land um, through right of you know being the king of France now and, you know, the most powerful man in the world. Um, you know, Normandy is lost in 1204. Um, 
you know, John is known as John Lackland, whether that's because he inherited no land, apparently, or because he lost all of it, um, leaving, you know, Gascony, essentially, um, and that was about it. Um, but yeah, so at the age of roughly 77, um, Eleanor, to broker a peace between John and Philip, uh, travelled to Castile uh, in uh, what is today, you know, Spain and Portugal, to secure a hand uh, of one of her granddaughters um, for Philip's son, uh, Shock, called Louis. Um, but on the way, she was kidnapped by Hugh de Lusignan, um, who was a disgruntled vassal who had had an argument with her ex-husband, not ex-husband, her uh, uh, Henry II. Um, but she was able to secure her own freedom, um, whether that was through wit, through financial um, compensation or through promises of land either way I think at, you know 70 plus years old of, of age able to travel from England to Spain on horseback get kidnapped free herself and then still secure the marriage anyway to um, you know have Blanche of Castile her granddaughter marry um, a future French king um, like I said, I think it's just the most Eleanor of Aquitaine thing, um, because despite you know all of the things against her, she was able to come out smelling of roses. And it's it's just fascinating. I know I've said that a lot about Eleanor's life, but it really is to do all of that and emerge in a stronger position is just incredible, uh, and certainly at her age to be able to do that. Is some it's something else, and to stand up to some of the most powerful men in Europe at this point, Hugh de Lusignan and the the Lusignan family are incredibly influential, incredibly powerful throughout mm -hmm. this period. It really shows her strength. It's not only a person, but also a, a feudal lord. Uh, and I think she's a very inspiring person for a lot, a lot of people. Now, tragedy befells Eleanor again. She's uh, well. She's had an inspiring life. She she has had a lot go wrong for her, and she's not only lived through the death of her mother, her brother, her father, her estranged second husband, her eldest son Henry, but also her favourite son Richard. How does she support her youngest son John? Now I know you're not the biggest fan of John, <laughs> but uh, she's still demonstrating that she puts family ahead of all things else yeah so Richard as popular as he is in in sort of uh, you know many an Englishman's heart it's he, he didn't really like England he spent probably six months of his 10 year reign in England he never learnt the language he you know was reported to have wanted to sell London if only he could find a buyer um, but he was a crusading king um, that you know, you know, mass massive amounts of glory and prestige for the Kingdom of England. But like I said, his his contemporary Philip Augustus, um, just by his nickname alone, shows the kind of man he was. Um, he saw himself as a new Roman emperor, hence taking the title August. Um, and John was not. Um, John Softsword, as he's also known as, was not a military leader like his brother or his father, and. Yeah, as much as as much as Eleanor truly did try, there was probably no helping John. Um, he um, married a twelve-year-old who was betrothed to somebody else, which annoyed everybody. 
Um, he would extort his um, subjects, which annoyed everybody. He may have had his nephew Arthur of Brittany killed. Um, and Eleanor just did her best job, uh, the best job she could, sorry, to, to hold the, the, the cracks of, of her former lands and former empire together. But um, that was probably, if it was me, would probably be the biggest tragedy of all seeing everything you've worked on for the past 50 years, 60 years, disintegrate because of your stupid son. Now, I'm, I'm definitely of a different persuasion than you, Chris. Uh, John was, what, what type of king he was, I definitely think he was a better king than most given credit for, but a bad person. And for Eleanor to be trying to fix this, she, should, she would probably be a very, very good CEO or chief marketing mm officer to be able to paper over these cracks as well as she did at this point as well you've touched on it again she is the mother of the king of england she's the grandmother of the king of france that's a very difficult position to be in where two of the strongest people in in europe medieval europe are your direct descendants how does she manage this or these relationships yeah so Obviously, we've we've already established physically where where these where these relationships come from. Having eight children with um, with Henry really helped dynastically. Um, unfortunately, many of their sons died. You know, William, their first, dies in childhood. Henry dies before he becomes king. Joffrey, uh, Joffrey, sorry, uh, Geoffrey, <laughs> going Game of Thrones there. Um, Geoffrey dies um, as well, leaving just Richard and John, but their daughters. Um, are all parcelled off and sent um, around Europe, uh, including to Castile, where we get uh, Blanche of Castile going back to France. Um, so again, it's just a political astuteness um, on both Henry's um, and Eleanor's part to tactically place children, um, which we see time and time again throughout history. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, quite famously, you could probably argue that Edward III uh, it didn't work because we get the Wars of the Roses out of out of his children uh, being so powerful. Um, but I think it's just a testament um, to, I guess it's a, a physical and biological reminder of how how important Eleanor was um, to not just her native land, but to England, to France, to the Spanish kingdoms, um, all across Europe, Eleanor's descendants. We're all descendant from Eleanor of Aquitaine in a sense. Um, if you believe in the common ancestry theory, um, and it's because you know her her children were so powerful that her line existed for for so long, you know, through the current monarch today. So she truly is the the mother of medieval and Renaissance Europe. Mm. Uh, for everything to be descended from her and come from her, it really does perfectly encapsulate her power, her influence and her determination to improve her own situation. Now to tie this all together nicely, Eleanor in the 1200s becomes ill. How, how does her illness affect her and, and what happens when she eventually passes to this illness? Yeah, so at this point Eleanor is at least 80 years old. Um, she's much older than she may have, you know, than most people get to. Um, you know, as much as life expectancy was maybe about 35, 40, 
Um, most people, at, if they survived infancy, would still get to sort of 50, 60 years old. But, you know, 80 years old um, is an incredible achievement. Um, but, yeah, she, she does become very ill um, and unfortunately passes away on the 1st of April, 1204. Uh, and she's interred at Fonsivro Abbey, where she had been... Uh, um, staying for the past few years um, all she wanted to do was probably retire to be um, you know to, to be with God for a few years obviously her sons kept her very busy um, but yeah she was laid to rest next to the tombs of Henry II um, and Richard the Lionheart um, which I think is fitting um, you know the, the, the husband that they achieved so much together and the son that she adored more than anything in the world um, she's wedged between those two um, and yeah I think obviously it's very very sad for me as a fan of Eleanor but also it kind of closes the book on the for me it closes the book on a period of history um, because truly after John you know things are forever changed um, I will say that I do think John was a, a very very astute um, accountant I think he was very frugal and very, very fiscally sound and very intelligent uh, he was just a terrible person um, but yeah with the death of Eleanor um, John's on his own and I think we see um, what happens in an Eleanor-less world for John uh, yes I think that's probably the best way to put it she definitely helped John out in his position so so well that he was able to cling to that power for probably longer than most people could imagine. And 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 her the end of her life really marks the end of an era where mm. her power prevents the apogee of papal power, the height of the, the power of the popes from emerging earlier. Uh, and I think she's an incredibly inspiring person. Now, Chris, final fun question here on the History of Jackson, as we do for all our podcast guests. As a historian of the medieval period, and one of the most gifted medieval historians I know, what are your three favourite <laughs> medieval battles? First of all, it's very kind of you to say that. Um, I'm going to totally disagree, but I will, I will take the compliment nonetheless. So I couldn't really um, whittle it down to three, so I'm going to speed run through a few of them. Um, the Battle of Eddington in 878, I think, is a really, really important one. It saw Alfred the Great defeat the Great Heathen Army. Um, similarly, uh, Brunenburg in 937, which saw Ethelred, uh, sorry, um, Ethelstan, um, basically create the Kingdom of England. Um, Stamford Bridge in 1066, I think, is a much more interesting battle than Hastings. Uh, the Battle of Lincoln, the first Battle of Lincoln in 1141 saw Stephen captured and Matilda, the closest Matilda, who I'm also another massive fan of, the closest she ever got to becoming Queen of England. The Battle of Arseth in 1191, uh, Richard the Lionheart's probably greatest victory against Saladin during the Third Crusade. Uh, Halladon Hill in 1333, which saw Edward III, you know, for the first time really used the longbow um, and the weather um, in a bit of a precursor to my absolute favourite medieval battle which is the Battle of Cressy in 1346 A fantastic list of battles and I, I really love that you've, you've gone beyond 
the 1066 mark as well into some pre-medieval history there as well. I think some people tend to forget that history does not, but certainly here in England, history does not begin in 1066. So thank you very much for shining a little bit of light on those. Now, if our listeners want to go away and read more about Eleanor of Acta and Chris, where can they go and what can they read slash listen to? I mean, a great place to, to, to check out would be my Instagram account because I talk about Eleanor all the time. But if you want a proper historian's um, opinion on Eleanor, uh, I would recommend uh, her biography by Alison Weir. It's just called Eleanor of Aquitaine. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, it's where I pretty much get all of my knowledge of Eleanor from. Um, it's one of my favourite books. I've read it a few times now. Um, also, Queens of the Crusades, again by Alison Weir, is a really, really cool book because um, it doesn't just talk about Eleanor. It talks about uh, Berengaria of Navarre, who was Richard's uh, queen, the only queen never to step foot in England, um, and all the way through all of the crusading queens, which is very, very cool again. Um, it wouldn't be me if I didn't mention Dan Jones. Again, Crusaders by Dan Jones is a really, really good book, again, from a crusading point of view, if you want more on the Second Crusade. Uh, Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine by Matt Lewis. Uh, Matt Lewis is a phenomenal historian. Uh, he's also uh, runs a very, very, very good podcast um, um, on medieval history. Um, but yeah, his book is great. And probably my favourite book out of all of this is King of the North Wind by Claudia Gold, which is about Henry II. Um, but you can't talk about Henry without talking about Eleanor. Uh, and I think as an overall for context, that book is truly wonderful fantastic thank you very much chris and if you guys want to go and uh, read them listen to them i'll make sure some of the links for those are in the bio below now thank you very much for coming on chris i really appreciate it we've learned so much from you and personally i've learned so much from you about this period as well it's a period i've never really touched upon so thank you very much now our listeners are going to want to find you and read your work online and learn from it. Now you've touched upon your Instagram and Chris's pieces on Eleanor are absolutely fascinating. So where can our listeners find you? So you can find me on Instagram at Chris Riley history uh, on Twitter because of Twitter's um, silly um, word count thingy. Uh, it's Chris Rye. That's Chris R I history. Uh, I tweet pretty much rubbish. So don't worry too much about that one. Um, as Jackson has probably already mentioned, um, you can find a lot of great work um, that both of us have contributed to uh, for the Historians magazine, uh, and also there is the History Corner blog, um, which is a, a website of mine. Uh, there are a couple of things about Eleanor and um, all sorts of stuff. Essentially, Instagram is the place to be, and it will direct you everywhere else. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Chris. And I'll make sure Chris's social media links are in the description below, so you don't have an excuse to not find him now thank you very much to, for today chris i really appreciate it and thank you very much for today guys for listening all about listening and learning sorry all about eleanor of aquitaine if you enjoyed this episode with myself and chris please make sure to like leave a review and possibly share for your friends to learn about the formidable the inspiring eleanor of aquitaine